Welcome once again. We are in the midst of a study titled Big and Small Questions of the Faith, and the question that we're tackling right now is a little bit different in that um, it is such a hot-button issue, meaning nearly everyone, at least in the West, is confronted with the question of origins, creationism, and the question on the table is, how are Christians supposed to be approaching it? And it's also a distinct question in that we're taking four weeks to address it, and most of the questions that I'm hoping to tackle are not going to be this big, although I am anticipating a number that still will be. Um, So here is the question as it's been recast in our discussion. I've already addressed creationism, noting that there's three different perspectives and that the elder affirmation at Bethlehem, which I joyfully endorse, is open to both young earth creationists and old earth creationists. But it does not, in the way that it's worded, appear to be open to evolutionary creationists, at least with respect to humans. Now, as I was pondering this further this week, I I recalled that not only was Adam created out of the dust, but animals, according to Genesis 2, were also created out of the ground. Now, the Elder Affirmation only specifies that we believe that Scripture teaches that Adam and Eve had a special creation. It doesn't go beyond that in its explicit statements. But the text that it uses to assert the special creation of Adam and Eve not only includes Eve's being created out of the rib of the Adam, the rib of the Adam, the rib of man, but also Adam's being created from the dust, from the ground. And so it seemed to me this week as I was pondering that by implication that may also then, because the animals are created also out of the ground, using the same phrase, that... that if you were talking with the orchestrators of the Elder Affirmation, they may also say, well, by implication, it would include that, but it doesn't make it explicit. If it does include that, then it would also imply that even the evolu- any, any form of evolution would be outside the bounds of the Elder Affirmation of faith. But last week, we focused in on the question of how to interpret the days in Genesis 1. And I'm a young earth creationist, and the question on the table, as it was reworked, is this. Why do you hold, Jason, to young earth creationism, believing that God created a mature earth in six 24-hour periods in a literal week, and that the earth is extremely young, like six to 10,000 years old? So, last week, we were focused on this six 24-hour period in a literal week element. And we entered in on to responding to a series of questions, potential challenges to young earth creationism, 
And we address some of them, the ones that are in bold. Can we really have a day and a night without a sun? We talked about that last week. Couldn't day just mean an indefinite period of time? I responded to that last week. Two questions we didn't cover. Even if you have a seven-day work week presented, don't the literary features of the text suggest that it's not chronological that it is not a chronological historical presentation. Isn't the mere fact that it's artistic suggests not history? And a simple question would be, well, no. You could go to Exodus 14, which has the Exodus portrayed as narrative, and then Exodus 15, which recalls the exact same historical event in a poetic song. Literary shape does not have anything to do with historical, chronological, or not. Well, what do we do with the chronological challenges between Genesis 1 and 2? And depending on how this morning goes, I may go back to this, but um, it's all here on my PowerPoint, my response, and it's even more expanded in a bigger document that'll be next to my PowerPoint on the website. And the short skinny is, I don't, I think that the, when, when you're reading Genesis 2, verse 5, for example, and it says that no bush of the field had yet been made and the small plants had not sprouted, the grain plants hadn't sprouted yet because there was no rain and there was no man, and then God makes man, it might seem like, well, didn't all that already happen on day three? And the language is a little bit different. That bush is not even mentioned, and oh, I didn't intend to get into all this. What am I, what am, where am I going? What am I going to do? Um, uh, I may come back to this, but... It's in my notes. It's on the PowerPoint, and I encourage you guys to go back to it and read it. We did address this question. Could so much have really happened on day six? And starting at six o'clock, he could be done by 3.30 and all's well. So day seven identifies the week as heavenly, not earthly time, because it's God who's resting, and it never ends. There's no ending formula, and I respond to that in my notes as well. Seven questions that I think... There's very solid, grounded biblical responses to, and, but I feel compelled to move ahead. Compelled so that um, this whole study gets done by next week. Because I don't, it could take an entire semester, and I don't want it to. And so today we're going to focus in on this part of our question. The extremely young nature of the earth. Specifically, we're focused in on the Bible. How does the Bible talk about these matters? And so I'm going to try to argue for you what's convinced me from Scripture that the biblical authors, even Jesus himself, thought the earth was young. And again, you may come to different perspectives than I do, But you have to be able to respond with texts and explain the text that I'm going to show today. You don't want to have a view that says, well, science teaches me this, and I don't understand what the Bible's saying, but science has taught me this. 
That's a, that's a different authority in your life. You want to go the other way. Where I can explain these texts. And if you can, then you're free to hold to a different view. And there are godly men and women who do. There are godly men and women who do. So this is where we're headed today. Young earth creation. Focused on the youngness. What is my argument? And I have five or six points. We'll see whether I have five or six by next week. Number one. We've already covered it. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 places humanity within the first week of creation. It's just what we covered last week. That as you're reading scripture, it opens with a week. And I think that's the best way to read it. It's a week. And I think it's literal rather than figurative. And it places humanity on day six. So that Wherever the beginning was, humanity's related to it. Now, let's just jump right ahead and consider how Jesus talked. So what I'm saying here is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 places humanity, day 6, within the first week of creation. And the New Testament closely associates the history of Genesis 2 through 4, that is, the events that we read about, marriage, the murderous, deceptive, twisted activity of the serpent. The fall of humanity in their rebellion and the curse of the world that follows. The New Testament associates the activities of Genesis 2-4 through 4 and the murder of Abel by his brother. Those events in Genesis 2-4, through 4, it associates them with the beginning. Not millions of years after the beginning. It associates them, ties them together with the beginning. So let's just look at these. Jesus saw the institution of marriage as being closely linked to the beginning, not just the beginning of humanity, no, the beginning of creation. Here's how it's worded. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Mark 10, 6. Now, if humanity was made in the bottom of the ninth, it would be strange to call it the beginning. As an old earth model would suggest. Millions of years before mankind even shows up. But that even the language of the beginning, I think, is an intentional echo of in the beginning God. And in the beginning of creation, there was male and there was female. Not distance by a long period. No, in the beginning. Male and female. Marriage was from the beginning. Jesus declared that Satan's murderous activity, not just his tendencies. You could have... Demonic tendencies that haven't shown forth themselves as we read about them in the story. But I'm saying 
The showing forth of those murderous tendencies was already operative at the beginning. Satan's murderous activities through his deception of Eve was closely associated with the beginning of creation. You are, Pharisees, of your father the devil. We're seed of Abraham. We're the offspring of Abraham. Oh, you're biologically connected to him, but you're not his seed. Seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. I tell you, you're the offspring of the devil. That's who you're associated with. He was a murderer from the beginning. And has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. From the beginning, he was a murderer. So when did he do that? When did he lie? When did he twist the truth of God? He did it at the beginning. So it's, it's putting mankind right up there with the beginning and not separating mankind from the beginning by massive amounts of time. It, just, it seems to me it's just reading it all as one composite. Jesus linked this murderous activity of the devil, this sinful activity, with the promise that the offspring of the woman would stand in friction with the serpent and his offspring. So we read in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And lest we think we're talking about lots and lots of kids, he shall bruise your head, devil, and you shall bruise his heel. The Passion of the Christ was mentioned this morning in the sermon by Pastor Jason. There's that, that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where the, the green snake slithers out and Christ stomps it with his foot right on the, the skull. We have a skull-crushing Savior. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, the sinning works of the devil that are associated with the beginning. Jesus saw the first human experience of tribulation as being located near the beginning of creation. And when he talks about the tribulation, he's talking about, so there's persecution from the perspective of the Antichrist. There is persecution and false teaching. That's what makes up tribulation. And it's already been operative. It's been flourishing for the last 2,000 years in pockets where the work of the devil has been engaging in tribulation against the church. And I'm anticipating a great tribulation where false teaching and persecution will go public on a global scale against all the church. Now the tribulation, though, here... And Jesus is anticipating this, but he compares the future tribulation with the tribulation that started in the garden, or rather, just outside the garden. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has had not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. 
So, so there's a tribulation that we might compare or think we want to compare with all the way back there at the beginning. And it suggests to me we're probably talking about Cain's killing of Abel. I'm trying to think, when would the first persecution or tribulation arise against the godly? It was when Cain killed Abel. And Jesus is looking back there to the beginning. From the beginning of creation, there's been tribulation, but not like what will be. You can go back and begin with Abel and begin to count all the righteous men and women who have been killed throughout the ages. And it will not compare to the great tribulation that is coming. Tremble. Take seriously God, because He's taking sin seriously. Jesus placed the martyrdom of Abel near the foundation of the world. The wisdom of God said, I will send prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Zechariah is not the latest prophet who was killed chronologically in the Old Testament, but he is the, the last of the prophets who is killed. If Chronicles, last book in Jesus' Bible, if Chronicles is the end. So this isn't an, from A to Z, because neither in Greek or in Hebrew is Zechariah the final letter, okay? It only works in English. So it's not from A to Z, and it's not from the first of the Old Testament martyrs to the last of the Old Testament martyrs. I think it's most likely, from a literary perspective, the first of the martyrs in Jesus' Bible to the last of the martyrs in Jesus' Bible, and the last martyr mentioned, if Chronicles is the final book, is Zechariah. So, Genesis being the first book of Jesus' Bible, Chronicles being the last book of Jesus' Bible, all the same books as we have in our Old Testaments, but in a different order. From Abel to Zechariah, there has been killing and persecution of God's people. But he, he dates it from the foundation of the world. So the question would be, when would the foundation of the world be? And Jesus didn't tell us that, but the writer of Hebrews does talk about these matters. He considered the foundation of the world to be the conclusion of the sixth day. Placed, he also placed humanity's rebellion, for which Jesus suffered, very near to the foundation of the world. And the writer of Hebrews contrasted this foundation with the end of the ages realized in the work of Christ. So let's just read the first text. For we who have believed entered that rest. Hebrews 4, 3 and 4. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now he's going to be talking about the Sabbath here. So I don't think this is, they were complete in the mind of God like um, Revelation 13, 8. 
Those whose names are written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Those written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That is, in the mind of God before He even started creation, before the foundation of the world, God already had His purposes climaxing in the cross. And everyone who would be identified with Jesus, already written in a book. This is not saying, talking about before the foundation, this is, talk, this is associating what was finished at the foundation of the world, and it's directly linked with the first week. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. So the foundation of the world is what is accomplished in days one through six. God's building project is done. Everything else, so that the foundation is laid, and everything else becomes structure on top of the foundation. Or Hebrews 9, 25 and 26, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So the foundation of the world is a period where sin is happening that would have required the suffering of the Christ, the dying of the Christ on behalf of humanity. That's what's happened since the foundation was completed. But Jesus is not like the priests of old. As it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages, and he's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, again, I, I'll, I'll say this, and I said it, I think, last week and probably the week before. The questions that we're wrestling with, they matter the entire process is to move us to stand in awe of our Creator who's been at work throughout all time, who's orchestrating all of history. As you wrestle with these matters, let your heart move in that direction. Don't let the questions of science or even the questions of of specific texts misplace our focus of awe that we have a God who's entered into space and time and is orchestrating a new creation to overcome the old broken one. And then I'll say this In my mind, as I've wrestled with things, I don't think there's a silver bullet argument. There's no lone ranger who's going to ride in and say, I can finally defeat the evil powers of young earth creationism. Nor nor is there a silver bullet that's going to say, Aha! All those old earthers are going down today. I, I I personally, there was a time in my life where I was almost leaning in that way. And I'm not anymore. I, I just I feel that I've had so many solid responses regarding specific texts that I put on the screen that are thoughtful and reasoned and probable. But they have potential of actually being the right interpretation that's different from my own that I just say, for me, I'm a young earth creationist because of a cumulative argument and I'm wanting you to feel some of the weight of the cumulativeness. Now, 
So, so I'm just trying to walk you through how have I gotten where I am. If Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is in the first, sorry, creation of humanity is placed in the first week. And the creation of humanity in the fall is associated with the foundation of the world and tied with the beginning. Then if I can make a case that says we have a very young humanity, then it pushes me to say then the earth or the universe would be young in earth years. Now, when I went to seminary, in my first year of seminary, I got to take an excellent class. It was called A Biblical Theology of the Pentateuch. So, we're going to read the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and try to assess how they provide a foundation for all of Scripture and, and shape trajectories that climax in the person of Jesus and culminate in the new creation of the, the, the bringing out of, of the new heavens and the new earth. And we spent, so that's a you know, 15-week class, 12 weeks it took us to get out of Genesis 12. Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, 12 weeks, and then the rest of the Pentateuch we got in four weeks. Um, but my professor, who I love dearly, he, he spent a lot of time trying to deconstruct my young earth creationism. I mean, I grew up in a family where young earth creationism was right up there next to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And, and we, we can laugh, but I think many of you know what I'm talking about. And, and then everything got deconstructed in my mind because I learned about the age of moon rocks. I learned about marsupials only being on a single continent. I learned about God's wrath being only against humanity, so there's no need for a global flood. But that's not what Genesis 6 actually says. It's the violence of all flesh. Violence of all flesh. And then it defines flesh as all living, breathing creatures. Animals and birds and humans. All flesh has to be destroyed. But I didn't see that then. And so he begins to deconstruct my thinking. And one of the things that he told me was that Genealogies, all genealogies in the Bible are selective. How many have heard of that before? We don't look, don't, don't try to fit all of early history in the genealogies in Genesis because we know biblical genealogies are selective. That is, it's, it's not lying, and it's not, to use the word son, bane in Hebrew, to be short for grandson or great-grandson or great-great-great-grandson. You can construct genealogies in Scripture for your purpose. You can't switch names around. You're talking about trajectories that are real, but you can shorten genealogies. For example, very first line of Matthew. The book of the genealogy... You should hear that. It occurs ten times in the book of Genesis. It's not always translated this way, and in fact, in our ESV, it doesn't translate it this way. 
But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is word for word straight straight out of Genesis, identical to the way that it's worded in Genesis. These are the generations of. This is the book of the generations or genealogy of Adam. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So, it's only three generations from Abraham to Jesus, and don't let anybody teach you differently. Right? No, what we have is a genealogy that is selective. It took two massively important figures from the Old Testament and showed that Jesus is directly tied to the promise that there would be an eternal throne given to David. And the promise that through Abraham's offspring, all the world would be blessed. Jesus is here. Next chapter, they're looking for the king of the Jews. Matthew 28 culminates. All authority is in heaven and on earth is given to me. I'm the king. I'm the one that everyone has been hoping for. Abraham, David, Jesus. That's biblical genealogy. We need to be able to read genealogies rightly. Now, I agree. And it was only six or seven years ago that I felt like I began to read Genesis on my own rather than through the lens of my seminary professor. I read the flood narrative on my own rather than just being guided by another. I felt like I, I, I was standing on my own two feet and I began to read so much of more of the Bible on my own. If it encourages any of you, it discourages me. It makes me wonder how many other things there are. But last fall, I'm teaching through Genesis chapter 15. How many times have I taught Genesis 15 to my students? And a student raises his hand and asks a question. Doggone it. And, <laughs> and the question comes to me, and I... And I I begin to stumble and stumble, and I answered, kind of, i got to think more about this. And I went back to my office, and I spent hours, um, probably two full days, 16 hours I spent that week, wrestling with that question. And all of a sudden, I realized so much of my, the rest of my worldview, my own understanding of Scripture, had been following the train that I was on, but that text was still bound up. The way I was reading that text was still bound up to how a seminary professor that was so convincing, who had, I mean, he had one of the top three most influential theological voices in my life, how he was approaching that text. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm approaching that text wrongly. And I had to go back and half the class the next week was me catching the students up on my 16 hours of wrestling to correct where I, what I had said the previous week. So, I'm still growing. I don't even know how I got there. Um, but, it, oh, yes. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so... Now, Daroshi, go back six years. Daroshi begins to read Genesis on my own. Just open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5 with me. And I'll see if I can help you read Genesis 5 on your own. 
Look at Matthew 1.1. And I, I said, this is a selective genealogy. In fact, you know that it's a selective genealogy because you move in the very next verse and it opens up with a genealogy that's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. That by itself tells us this is a selective genealogy. And then if you were to go back to Chronicles, you'd also see that those 14 generations are most likely also a selective genealogy. Selective meaning I'm not going to pick out every name. I'm going to pick out certain names. But they're all going to be in order. There's no lying or twisting going on here. It's just selective. I'm not going to include everything because I've got a purpose to make. Just like he can shorten this one down. And the readers, the assumption is, they would have all known what he was doing. Nobody would have felt like they were being deceived. But I want you now to consider this genealogy up against what we're going to read in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, I want to propose, are totally different genealogies than we find anywhere else in Scripture. There's no other genealogies like these ones. We have linear genealogies and we have segmented genealogies. So, Genesis is driven by the Messiah and by missions. Through you all the world will be blessed. Specifically, through your future son, the Messiah, the great deliverer. They're hoping in this deliverer. They're waiting for this deliverer. And when he arrives, he will possess the gate of his enemies. And Abraham will move from a father of a nation to a father of a multitude of nations. Only when the future king comes. So I think that the reason we have dates and ages given in this genealogy is to say, look at this, God is preserving those who hope in his promise generation by generation by generation and skipping none. It fits into the book of Genesis. It fits into the message of Genesis. The ages and the genealogies point to a humanity being around 6,000 years old. And if humanity is connected with the beginning, and humanity was made in the first week of creation, you can see how my logic is leaning. Now, even if son is at, time, at times means grandson or great-grandson... The specificity of the ages counters the likelihood of gaps. So I'm struggling to see how we fit gaps into a, an aged and dated genealogy. So, so I, I'm just saying I don't know how to fit them in. I don't know. Now there's other problems that at least people propose there's problems. Well, if you hold this, then what you're saying is, Most of Abraham's descendants were alive, and they, Adam would have only died 200 years earlier, and yes, that's what I'm saying. And I don't feel the weight of the challenges, but we could talk about those at another time. But I'm just saying, the text is my highest authority, and I'm struggling to see how I can read this genealogy like Matthew 1.1. Let me just finish my thought and see. I I really thought I was going to be done like at quarter till so we could have time for questions today. Let me just finish this and then... And this may have been one of the questions. I don't know. 
There are ten figures in Genesis chapter 5 from Adam to Noah. There's only nine figures in the Hebrew text of Genesis 11 from Shem to Terah. But if you go to Luke 3, you see there's ten. So it's been proposed... Doesn't this mean that there is at least a single gap? We jump from Archpashsad to Shelah in the Hebrew Old Testament text, but Canaan shows up in the Greek text, and we believe that all Scripture is true. So doesn't this suggest at least one possible gap? Well, it is possible that there's one gap possible, but I don't know how that fits, how that would fit with the age proposal. I don't know how to make it work. So that leads me to two other possibilities. Either Canaan has been mistakenly added into the Luke genealogy, or it's been mistakenly left out of the one manuscript. We we only have, this is a, we're using a single manuscript when it comes to our Hebrew Old Testaments. It just accidentally got left off in the period before the printing press when scribes are working on the text. And we see things like this when a little footnote is in our text and it says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this, like the final part of Mark 16, or like the woman caught in adultery. And when Pastor John was preaching in John chapter 8 and he came up to that text He actually spent an entire week telling us why he didn't think that the woman caught in adultery was actually part of our Bible, even though it's printed in the ESV. But the footnote told us. So, so I'm. But we don't have to be scared. We're not talking about what was in the original manuscripts. We're talking about what came in time, and these issues are, as a whole, quite minimal in Scripture. But what I'm saying is, these are. Even if we leave out one generation and say that it's a gap, notice that Luke only adds one. So that doesn't give us millions of years or thousands of years. So we're still not talking about massive gaps regardless, and the ages suggest a very young humanity, and if God made humanity at the beginning in the first week of creation, then the universe is young in earth years. Let me pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give the glory. Every one of us in this room give you praise for being the creator of all things. We thank you that the day is coming when we will not look through a glass darkly, but we will see face to face. And with that will come increased awareness, increased knowledge in expanded and ever-increasing measure. We'll never reach the top of the mountaintop and say, now I've figured God out. Now I've got it all down. And we just, our, our hearts actually get elevated with anticipation that there will ever be a more beautiful vista from which to look at you and to look back on all that you've 
done in space and time. Thank you that you have redeemed us. Thank you that you've called us to be your own. Thank you that you are our rock and we stand on you. Blood-bought grace saturates us. And so even when we struggle with tough questions like creationism and the age of the earth, um, we rest knowing that you are for us, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ was. We celebrate that we are just a clay pot, intentionally so, in order to show that the surpassing power comes not from us, but from you. May the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, pervade through our words and through our actions. May our dispositions be be drenched, saturated with mercy. May others find in us people who stand with deep conviction and yet who equally love everyone. May we stand confident that there is only one way to the Father through Jesus. That is it. And yet, not lift ourselves above anyone else knowing that we are nothing apart from Christ. Give us increased clarity of your truth. But thank you that we don't have to have that increased clarity for you to be for us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.